So in our study of Revelation, we've covered Jesus' assessment of two churches. Uh, With Ephesus, we learned that alongside doctrinal orthodoxy and moral resilience, a faithful church must also excel in love. And then with the church in Smyrna, we learned that being faithful unto death is only possible when we've made ourselves rich in Jesus beforehand. Okay, and so we've got five more uh, to go here. But with the next five, you begin to see this this pattern uh, develop. Uh, Faithfulness to Jesus is going to attract persecution from the world. People are going to do terrible things to get Christians to abandon Jesus. However, as we read of these, these next five messages, we also see that this pattern, that we, all, we will also see a pattern that reveals that the greatest threat to the church is not persecution. It is not from outside. The greatest threats to the church come from within. When people inside the church make compromises and start mixing Christianity with worldly ideas. Now, sometimes Christians will make these compromises uh, in ignorance. Like a fish scarcely knows it's in water. Right? They scarcely discern ways that, that they might be participating in the culture's idolatry. Other Christians will compromise to indulge the flesh. Okay? They, they like the world's ways, and they choose to believe things that will allow them to keep participating in those things. And still others are just afraid. So the fear of man, uh, the fear of losing control, the fear of losing their stuff, the fear of death might be moments where, that lead people to compromise truth or compromise obedience. Whatever the reasons, compromise within the church is a, far greater, is a far greater threat than persecution without. In Revelation, persecution is a sign that a church is faithful. Churches who look just like the world... They don't pose any threat to Satan's war. But Jesus doesn't tolerate such compromises. Jesus wants his church to overcome. He wants his people to inherit the new Jerusalem. He wants his gospel preserved so that it can continue to spread among all nations. And so he he comes to us with some much-needed instruction here With the church in Pergamum, we learn the necessity of holding fast as faithful witnesses when lies abound. So listen to our Lord's words, beginning with verse 12. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Revelation would have circulated uh, from Ephesus to Smyrna, and then you go about a a day's walk north, uh, and you would land in Pergamum. And this city was known for a, a very high Acropolis. It's also known for its loyalty to Rome. And not only was it well decorated with pagan temples, but the culture promoted religious allegiance to the emperor. So Christians found themselves in a, in a city where not participating in that allegiance meant that you suffered the emperor's sword. According to Jesus, though, there is a far greater sword to fear. Jesus recalls that sword in verse 12. Thus says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And once again, he's pointing us back to the picture of his glory in chapter 1, in particular verse 16, where we saw John says, from Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So from his mouth uh, refers to the words that Jesus speaks. A sharp two-edged sword is an instrument of war. It is a weapon to conquer your enemy. And so you, you put those two things together. Jesus conquers his enemies by the words he speaks. Okay, so Isaiah 11.4 says of the Messiah, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah 49.2, again, of the Messiah, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And so Jesus combines these images to describe how he brings judgment on his enemies. He speaks and it happens. And you find the same image appears in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 15 where he strikes down the nations with the sword of his mouth when he returns in glory. And so his words, in other words, are going to, are going to end all rebel kingdoms. So Rome, or any other government power for that matter, they might carry a sword and they might strike fear in their citizens with that sword, but there is one sword that is greater than all of those powers combined, and it is the sword of Jesus' mouth. His word is all-powerful. And that means we should listen up when he speaks here. Right? We should pay attention to what he's about to say. So Jesus follows a pattern that we've observed before. As he walks among the churches, he makes observations, and he, he sees things in each church that he commends and others things that he condemns. And so let's look first at what Jesus commends. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now notice how he describes their city. They live where Satan dwells. They live uh, where Satan's throne is. And some have taken that to mean that Satan's throne was limited to, to Pergamum somehow, or, or that Satan's rule was really concentrated there. Uh, and that might be so, given the, the number of temples built to the pagan gods in that city, and the emperor worship was, was also stressed, and As I mentioned before, the city had this high acropolis, uh, and people often viewed their gods as enthroned on on the hills, okay, where the temples stood. And so so maybe, but a few things uh, lead me to, to see a broader picture that's being painted here with this imagery of Satan's throne, Satan's dwelling. And one is that Pergamum is not unique, okay? Pagan temples and emperor worship characterize other cities in Rome just as much. Also, as Revelation unfolds, you will find a contrast between, and and this, this contrast will emerge between 
God's throne in heaven, that's chapter 4, Satan's throne on earth, which is right here. Okay? You have God's reign in heaven and Satan cast down to the earth. That's chapter 12 in Revelation. You have God's dwelling giving life to people. That's chapter 7, 14, and 22. And you have Satan's dwelling that takes life, like you see here with Antipas, or later when Satan gives his throne to the beast in chapter 13, and the beast makes war on the saints and kills them. See, God's dwelling giving life, Satan's dwelling on earth taking life, and so it seems that Satan's dwelling or throne is a code word for the influence Satan has anywhere on earth. Okay? Satan dwells on earth because God ousted him from heaven. And now he's wreaking havoc on the church, knowing that his time is short. That's a quote from chapter 12 of Revelation. 1 John 5.19 also says, so another book that John wrote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay? Other places call him the ruler of this world. Okay? So this is where not just these Christians dwell, this is where you dwell. Yes, even in America, you dwell where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's influence is. is. And he hates your obedience to Jesus. And he will do everything to keep you silent about Jesus and to keep you distracted from God's word and to keep you fearing everything besides Jesus. And he will even kill your most faithful church members to shut you up. So we are in a war. We are in a cosmic war. And that is what Revelation is painting here. But notice how they've responded to this satanic pressure. Jesus says, You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus was called the faithful witness. So we see here that this guy named Antipas is following in Jesus' footsteps. And he lays down his life in the path of obedience. And so Antipas stands as an an example uh, uh, of what being faithful unto death looks like, if you remember Christ's words to the church in Smyrna. Be faithful unto death. Well, here's your example in, in Antipas. So Jesus commends Antipas' faithful witness to us, and then he also commends the rest of the church for holding fast to his name. What does that mean, to hold fast to Jesus' name? When you look at passages uh, in the New Testament where uh, somebody is living for Jesus' name or speaking in Jesus' name or being persecuted for his name's sake, and, and you kind of study the context of those passages, here's what I gather. Uh, To live for Jesus' name means you acknowledge his authority, you publicly identify with Jesus in word, in the words you speak, and then you represent Jesus through your obedience to him on earth. So you acknowledge Jesus' authority, you publicly identify with Jesus in the words you speak, and you represent him through obedience. Okay? Holding fast to Jesus' name means you keep doing all those things even when others pressure you to stop. Okay? So these Christians here, we have a great example in them. They didn't give up when they saw Antipas die. When the authorities 
killed him and said, You're next. We will sever your head just like we did his. We will make you an example to others. When that happened, they kept following Jesus. They keep speaking about him to others. They count the cost and still choose to obey Jesus instead of fearing man. And so their endurance is, and their boldness is commendable to to all. But that endurance is under threat. Okay? As time passes in this church, that endurance starts to to slip for, for some in this church. And we're not told exactly why they, they're, they're making the compromises they, they are making, but perhaps it's a result of persecution. They're starting to think, I, I don't know if I want to keep telling people that Jesus is the only way or there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, men the man Christ. I don't know if I want to keep saying those things in, in Rome. And so you find some who are compromising with, with worldly ideas, you know, and taking the sharp edges off of, off of Jesus' teaching. So look, look now at what Jesus condemns and threatens here. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now some wonder whether the Nicolaitans here are an additional group of false teachers to those you see in verse 14, but I don't think that's happening. What, what's going on is that the, the Nicolaitans are the, are the contemporary version of Balaam's false teaching and its results. Okay? The, the situation with Balaam becomes a type, in other words. Balaam's deception and Israel's compromise with idolatry and immorality, well, that story keeps reappearing throughout history. It just wears different disguises. And some in this church have been duped. So let's go back and look at what Balaam, what happened with, with Balaam. All right. Balaam first appears in Numbers 22. And he's a pagan diviner. People are paying him money so that he can interact through various ways with the supernatural. 2 Peter 2 tells us that he loved making money. He loved gain from wrongdoing. And uh, as the story goes, we also learn that a donkey has more spiritual insight than Balaam. All right? So he's not a great guy. Then there's this other one named Balak, who is the king of Moab, and he doesn't like Israel. He doesn't like how how many people they are becoming, and he views them as a threat, and so he hires Balaam to curse Israel, and that goes bad for him. Doesn't work out. God frustrates that plan, and, and, and as Balaam is prophesying over Israel, he doesn't curse them, he blesses them, and so Israel winds up more blessed than when Balak set out to undermine them. <clears throat> Well, how then is Balak going to get them? All right? It is not by an attack from outside. All right? He would get them to compromise from the inside. All right? So, Numbers 31, verse 16. In Numbers 31, verse 16, it tells us that Balaam eventually advises Balak to seduce the Israelites with the women of Moab such that they would give in to idolatry. And that event 
happens in Numbers 25. So you don't get what actually happened behind the scenes till later in Numbers chapter 31. But then you go back and read the account in Numbers 25, and, and this is what it says, that the people began to, to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now that could involve sexual immorality right off the bat, not necessarily by uh, this language of whoring after other things is, is the Old Testament's language of idolatry, that you're being unfaithful to your covenant husband, Yahweh. And so, so sexual immorality might be included, but overall it's just forsaking your covenant husband. Okay, so, so they, it says the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, and these invited people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And this is how, this is how hardened they become in this event. It's, at one point, they're all weeping because of, of the judgment of God. And there's another guy in the camp who's just bring, bringing this girl through the camp in front of everybody, like, I'm just living this up, arrogantly walking through the camp with the Moabite woman uh, and, 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 and giving himself to the, their, their idols. So what happens? Okay, What happened in, in the story? Balaam teaches Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel and some inside of Israel take the stumbling block, right? They, they start making compromises. They, they accommodate the stumbling block, and then it leads to infidelity, All right? They break covenant with God. They join the Moabite women in their idolatry and immorality. And apparently, the Nicolaitans have convinced some in this church to make similar compromises, Right? They're like the new, the new Balaam, Balaam. Some have embraced their teaching to the point of accommodating idolatry and immorality. And notice, they haven't left the church. They're still in the church. He says, you have some there. Still holding these, these things. They've embraced false ideas that have led to infidelity that have led to compromise with worldly ideas and practices. The Lord does not tolerate such compromise among his people. And as the story goes in Numbers 25, the Lord sent a plague on Israel that killed 24,000. 24,000 perished due to their compromise. Also in Numbers 31, Balaam gets the sword. Okay? So the Lord knows how detrimental it is to to the life of his people. And so building on this Old Testament example, Jesus warns them in verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them. That That is the people making these compromises. Not everybody in the church is making these compromises, but the people, some in that church were. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to war against them with the sword of my mouth, he says. He doesn't specify what judgments this... This, this, would, this word will cause, but, but we know enough from Scripture elsewhere, you don't want the Lord's word against you. Okay? I mean, you could think of the flood, or the plagues in Egypt, or the ground swallowing Korah's children, entire nations getting toppled overnight, some in the Corinthian church later on, after abusing the Lord's Supper, and treating each other shamefully, and the Lord causes some of them to, sick and, to get sick, and some of them to die. All because God speaks a word of of judgment. So making compromises to accommodate the world's idolatry and immorality invites this severe judgment. I think James is, this kind of echoes of James here, that when you make friends with the world, you become enemies of God. All right, so for those who repent, though, for those who repent, to, to turn away and turn to the Lord... For those who listen to Jesus and take his warning seriously, look at what he promises. What he promises. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, these promises are more challenging to discern, especially the white stone. I'm going to give it a shot. You can test it. All right? I'm going to try to put some things together here, and let's start with the the hidden manna. Exodus 16 is where we learn first of manna. Right? Israel is in the wilderness, and in the wilderness, God is nourishing his people with manna there. It's giving them life. And so uh, uh, manna was also not something like they produced, like here's some manna, and then they start planting their own crops, and they grow manna in the wilderness, and, and they do it all on their own. It was a miraculous food that God sent from heaven, right? It came with the morning dew. That's why later in John's gospel, he calls it bread from heaven. So Jesus is drawing from that story and promising an even greater type of nourishment. A nourishment that doesn't just sustain us physically, but spiritually. And he calls it hidden manna, meaning you cannot see it with your eyes. It is something stored up in heaven that must be given you by God. Now I'm going to step out just for a second and make a parenthesis because I read this last night in Exodus the manna and Hebrews. So this is, this is new to me this morning, guys. So <laughs> this is not in the manuscript. Uh, the manna was eventually put in a jar and hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. All right? Hebrews talks about this. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's dwelling, God's throne, God's th- enthroned presence in Israel, okay? So, you can't see that manna, can you? It's, it's in the Ark of the Covenant, God's, in th- God's enthroned presence. So, what I'm thinking here is that when Jesus gives you this hidden manna, what he is giving you is food from the very presence of God. From the very, he's giving you the life where God himself is enthroned. All right? Um, All right, close parentheses and back here. Um, So you can't see with your eyes. It's something stored up in heaven. must be given to you by God. Here's a big clue, though. Go with me to chapter 12 in Revelation. Chapter 12... Chapter 12 is a fun one. I wish the Advent season looked more like chapter 12. Uh, Dragon trying to come and destroy the infant child and the infant child being rescued and throned. Um, But here here we get this, this picture of the woman and the dragon and the woman representing God's people. But I want, we're not going to get into a lot of details here. Look at verse 6. Uh, it says, and the woman, so think the, the faithful covenant community, the woman fled into the wilderness, just like Israel fled into the wilderness. The woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. We'll get to this later, but the 1,260 days is the time period that lasts between Jesus' resurrection and his return. This whole time. The church is in the wilderness. There. Okay? And then also, uh, if you look at verse 14, we get this same... uh, Let's start in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Again, 1,260 days. 
And uh, verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those, here's the woman, right, and her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so you got this picture of a church in the wilderness being threatened by Satan. And all the while, God is nourishing them in the wilderness, just like he nourished Israel in the wilderness with the manna. Okay, so the hidden manna is not merely a promise of future nourishment. It is the promise of present nourishment as you endure this wilderness and as you endure Satan's attacks. So if you choose obedience over compromise... Jesus is going to nourish you with the heavenly food, with the life from God's very presence. Every morning, he's going to meet you with his his bread. You will be like that hungry Israelite just waiting for the sun to crest, right? So you can get some of the food from the Lord. You're waiting for the dawn, and and every day you're going to find God faithful to nourish you in the wilderness and to satisfy you until you enter the promised land. Okay? It's good stuff, isn't it? All right, the other promises is a white stone. I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, I'll give you more than that. All right, so, but it's kind of true. I stopped reading after 13 different interpretations here. All right, so some relate it to the priesthood. Since uh, chapter 14, verse 1 depicts the church wearing the lamb's name. Okay, on their foreheads like the, the priests. And he had the stone engraved uh, of the Lord there. Um, others compare it to uh, a stone used for an admission to, to a feast. Okay, and so this would be like your, your personal ticket to the Lamb's wedding feast. Uh, I think a far better possibility likens this stone. It's likened to the stone used in voting. There's only one other place where this word is used in the New Testament. And it is Acts chapter 26 verse 10. When Paul is telling his testimony about how he used to persecute the church. And he says, I cast my vote against them. Meaning, I laid down the stone against them. And so in that setting, you have here a black stone that meant you're a condemned man. And a white stone that meant you're vindicated. So Paul, as he's telling this testimony, I cast the black stone against the church before I knew Jesus. Okay? And so the idea here would be that Jesus will see to it that we are personally vindicated for our faithfulness. Okay? Now all these views that I just said, they have their own weaknesses, but wherever you land... We can say this much with certainty. The stone is good, right? It's, it's Jesus' reward, all right? We can say it is personal. He will give it to you, right? It's permanent. He engraves it on stone. Uh, it marks a purified, triumphant people, which is the way white is used in, in Revelation, like with the white linens clothing God's people, uh, in, 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 uh, before his throne. Uh, it also, this stone also sets you apart for the newness of God's kingdom. So think, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Jesus is making all things new. All right? Well, Jesus is also going to give you a new name. Okay? And, and that could be Jesus's own new name. If you flip over to chapter 3, verse 12, it says that he will write on us the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. Isaiah 62, verse 2, might also sit in the background here. This is where God is promising his people a new name, and he says, you shall no more be called forsaken, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. Hephzipha, my delight 
is in her. Are you imagining this? Jesus is going to give you a name that says, my delight is in you. Like a husband might give his wife a new name that he calls her tenderly after they're married. That communicates to her, my delight is in you. So you have sinners. We are sinners, unclean, wretched, deserving only forsakenness. And yet now we we hear our covenant husband saying, my delight is in you. That's good news. This is, this is abundant grace here. So, I don't understand everything about this white stone and the new name, but I know enough to want it really badly. Okay? And I also hunger for this hidden manna. So, how can we respond to make sure we overcome? Okay? How can, uh, what can we do to hold fast as faithful witnesses when, when lies abound around us in this wilderness and when Satan is threatening us. And we can, just based on this text here, we can preserve and we can proclaim. All right? First, preserve. We can preserve the truth by not compromising Christianity with worldly ideas. Preserve the truth by not compromising Christianity with worldly ideas. Balaam put a stumbling block before Israel, and they made compromises that then led to idolatry and immorality. So how do Christians nowadays make compromises? What, what do we see like Balaam 2.0 now? Like, what do we see nowadays? Well, one example could be Christians accommodating worldly ideas on sexuality. Some, like the spiritual friendship community, teach that uh, they teach against homosexual practice, but they don't find homosexuality itself a morally culpable issue. Others, like Revoice, confess the historic Christian doctrine of marriage, and yet they're still using language like gay Christian, LGBTQ plus Christian. And I think Rosaria Butterfield has, has this right here. She says, Their theology in no way allows for an understanding of why homosexuality, even at the level of desire, that's important, even at the level of desire is sinful and needing the grace of repentance. We must maintain that we who repent and believe stand in robes of righteousness. This is still... Rosaria, stands in robes of righteousness as beloved sons and daughters of God, even as we do daily battle with any and all sexual lust. We are not our sin, and we ought never to let our sin define us. Another example is is what some have called the social justice movement. God commands Christians to do justice, to let the oppressed go free, to pour yourself out for the hungry, and to plead the widow's cause. We should stop abortion and human trafficking. We should upend racism, and we should adopt the orphan. At the same time, some Christians are pursuing this from a starting place that undermines the gospel and leads to idolatry. Okay? So they divide people up into group identities instead of seeing our shared heritage in Adam. They dismiss truth and logic as constructs of what they call the oppressive class instead of embraced as objective gifts that are embedded in the created order by God. Two members meetings ago, I passed out seven copies of Confronting Justice Without Compromising Truth by uh, Thaddeus Williams. Some of the bad ideas associated with the social justice movement are actually being repeated by Christian leaders. He quotes from some of them in that book. So I commend his work to you uh, and just stay alert here with what's going on. Here's another way 
Christians have compromised with worldly ideas. Some have called it Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Now, definitions of Christian nationalism vary, and you'll find guys out there be like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm part of a nation. Does that make me a Christian nationalist? Okay, here's what I mean by Christian nationalism. My country is God's favorite, and we have a unique relationship with God. It is echoed in the words of a Christian leader who said, America is the last hope of Christianity. It is, it is reflected in a sermon by Robert Jeffress at FBC Dallas last summer with the title, America is a Christian Nation. Its most extreme forms were seen last December in the so-called Jericho March. It even comes out when we walk around with our chip on our shoulder looking for our rights all the time. It is true that in God's providence, America has been used in special ways. We also don't want to embrace revisionist histories that skew the truth and ignore the good things about this country. But if we are not careful, our loyalty to this nation can eclipse our vision for Christ's kingdom, which is not of this world, and which also consists of a countless hosts of redeemed from all languages, tribes, tongues, and peoples, and our first citizenship is there. If we are not careful, instead of bowing our knee to Jesus, we will bow our knee to autonomous self-determination, which is so championed by our country. If not careful, your rights will become ends in themselves, where you are willing even to subvert legitimate authority when God's word has commanded you to submit to them. And if not careful, freedom, what we call freedom, will become just a disguise to do whatever you want instead of that freedom having the higher goals of pursuing the common good and protecting the weak and the innocent and reflecting God's compassion and generosity in Christ. If you're there, you need to repent or Jesus will wage war against you with the sword of his mouth. Another compromise is when we mix Christianity with pragmatism. We come to think that winning is more important than obedience and integrity. We act like it's okay to misrepresent our political and theological opponents because, hey, after all, we're on the right side. It comes out in other ways, too, like Christians pretending that it doesn't matter if the actual criminals get due process. Or we don't have to give justice to the bad guys. We just have to beat them or carpet bomb them. That is not being a faithful witness. And it is damnable ideas that are seeping into the church. And it is causing Immoral choices. And people are liking it on Facebook. Guard yourself from these compromises. Or Jesus will war against you with the sword of his mouth. Also, preserve the truth by patiently equipping one another with the truth. Without knowing the truth, we have nothing to offer the world in our witness. Make it a priority to know the truth and to help each other know the truth. Read your Bible regularly and pray for discernment. Come to the equip classes on on Sunday morning. I know the one I sat in on this morning was very Helpful. Read the historic creeds and confessions of the church to understand what has the church confessed about this truth before. If you spend much time on the internet and social media, recognize that unless you take measures to work really hard against it, 
Google and Facebook are only feeding you what you want to believe. You're in a filter bubble. That's the title of the book, by the way. I recommend you reading it. You're in a filter bubble that distorts your perception of what is important, of what is true, and what is real. It gives you a customized world that revolves around you. And it just reinforces the ideas you would have held anyway. Right? You look. <laughs> My son did a project this week on the Ptolemaic universe where the earth is at the center and everything else centers around the earth. That's what Google, Facebook, and your smartphone are doing. You are the center and everything else revolves around your world and your ideas. And we need other people to come in like Copernicus and say, that ain't right. Get out of your little filter bubble. We need the scriptures and other Christians outside of our circles and other Christians who have preceded us in history to give us a better perspective and discernment of where we are now. Also, hold each other accountable to the truth, right? When someone comes to you and says, I don't think you're seeing this correctly, humble yourself, listen to their input, and then give yourself to rigorous study to correct your thinking. If you see someone compromising Christianity with worldly ideas, approach them about it. Understand that people are making compromises for different Reasons. So ask lots of questions to understand why are these compromises happening in your life. It could be that they're just ignorant and need more discipleship. They need you to sit down and talk to them about Jesus and show them in the Bible where these things are. It could be that they want to satisfy a sinful desire. And so you'd have to get in and untangle this web of desires and where they're rooted and what they're coming from and what beliefs are entering to make them think it's okay. Sometimes compromises occur as a result of fear, fear of losing friends over the Bible's over holding fast to the Bible's teaching or fear of not fitting in or fear of ridicule for believing Jesus is the only way. And so you would need to address those fears. Sometimes it's a result of sorrow and loss. So people are in different places. You need to know them. You need to, to know what's, what's going on in their lives first, and then you'll be better able to equip them in the truth. So preserve the truth. But we can't stop there with just preserving the truth. We must also proclaim the truth by being faithful witnesses like Antipas. Okay, Revelation holds up Antipas as an example Imitate Antipas as he imitated Christ. So what does your witness look like? What does it look like at home? With your wife? With your children? What does it look like with your circle of friends? What does it look like at school or with your neighbors or your co-workers? Earlier we discussed living for Jesus' name. Do you acknowledge Jesus' authority? And if so, do you publicly identify with Jesus in, in the words you speak? By, by confessing him before others and by sharing about his grace and glory with, with people who don't know him? How does he come up in your, in your conversations with others? How, how are you praying to, to share the gospel with, with others? What about representing him through obedience? Is it your habit to to cave to, to pressures of temptation or people just going to think I'm weird if I keep doing this. When circumstances require much sacrifice, do you run and hide from people? Or do you draw near in the path of love and take up your cross just like your Savior did when he saved you? Those who suffer in the name of Christ 
in, in the path of obedience, like we see here with Antipas, they are examples to embolden our own witness. When Paul wrote to the Philippian church from prison, he says, I want you to know, brothers, so he's in prison, he's writing to those who are not in prison, and he says, I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of, that my imprisonment is for Christ, and most of the brothers, listen to this, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment is giving Christians back home confidence and more boldness to speak the gospel, and that's what Antipas is supposed to do for all of us. All right? That's what faithful witnesses everywhere should do for us. When, we, when, we, when they stand fast under, under trial, God means for their lives to embolden our witness. So who are, some of, who are some of the people that you would like to share with? You can probably name them in your head right now or, or write them down in, in your journal or whatever. Who are some of the people that you'd like to share with? Commit to praying for those people regularly. In what ways might you need more boldness to speak on behalf of Christ? That could be a, an unbelieving husband. It could be a co-worker. What, what, what ways do you need to be emboldened? Commit those to prayer and, and ask God to give you that, that boldness that he blessed Antipas with. Also remember that each, with, with each step of obedience that you take in this wilderness, Jesus give you some of the hidden manna, okay? Jesus is going to nourish you with heavenly food. He promises to help you through the wilderness with each step of obedience until you enter the new Jerusalem. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I pray that you would give us life through your word. And then throughout the week, give us the wherewithal to take that next step of obedience to Jesus. Make your people bold in proclaiming his name. And even if faith with death or trying circumstances as a result of their obedience, make them like Antipas. Make us all like Antipas. That we are willing to lay down our lives to see Christ's name advance. Amen. Amen.